Welcome to Africa Stories in the 55. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. Sometimes literature crosses into reality, a fictional tale based on truths. House of Stone by Zimbabwean author Novuyo Rosa Chuma is just that. It brings to light the memories and the stories of those who survived the Gukura Hundi, a genocide carried out in Zimbabwe in the 1980s, told through a narrator with psychological issues. But we'll let Novuyu Rosa Chuma tell you what her book is all about. So many things, you know, um, when I started this project, right, and House of Stone is the country name Zimbabwe, it really was for me an investigation of or trying to know about our history. You know, we all, we have a very sort of streamlined version of history, right, in Zimbabwe that's told, you know, by our government. So we have a one version of history, the Liberation War, and it's it's divided into heroes and villains. And in the high school, in our education system, we learn mostly actually a sort of a British education. So um, when I started writing this novel, I was in South Africa and, you know, frustrated with being an immigrant there and the treatment that we had. And I just started reading about our past. It was a very sort of intellectual thing at the at the beginning. Like, what happened? How did we get here? And as I read, I just got really fascinated by the stories, especially the human stories and the discovery that um, people back then, like in the 80s, the 70s, the Liberation War, we're going through the things we went through now, like human emotions, the feelings and the frustrations and the very human response to difficulty and hardship and so I was excited to sort of see that and I therefore wanted to write about it and of course in reading up about the past I came across the many difficult faces of Kukurahundi, our genocide. It's something we grew up knowing about, we know about it but we actually do not know it um, in the sense of looking it in the face and that for me was uh, a very profound and difficult and shocking thing to to try and contemplate and watch and see what this was and what it meant. So that really moved me to to start writing this book. The main character, Zamani, is quite a master manipulator. Can you tell mm. us about his machinations? I mean, he's the one telling the story. Well, you know, Zamani, <laughs> Zamani, he actually as a character came later on in the novel but once I found his voice, it just kept going. On a purely story level, for me, Zamani is, um, he's got psychopathic tendencies and he is um, someone who's trying to claim his history, trying to find himself, rewrite history, sort of big grand project where he's taking control of his life. And on a sort of basic level in relation to Zimbabwe, it's a rebuff against being told your history and who you are and how you should be and sort of claiming that and action and the activity of actually trying to get to know yourself. But, um, you know, when I finished the book, I realized the money on a basic level embodies for me um, the best and worst of what I consider our national spirit in Zimbabwe, which is a sense that when we speak about ourselves and our culture, you know, we're known and we know ourselves and we talk about ourselves as a very peaceful people, a very loving people. And always, there's always this running away from talking about the very real bloody violence that has been part of that history and that has formed us. 
So for me, Zamani became his manipulation and his character without my realizing it actually came to embody for me what I feel is the sort of spirit, the many contradictions and complexities that have made Zimbabwe and that we have lived by. I mean, during the past two decades, we, we had to wheel and deal. I mean, I was there from 2000 to 2009, before my family moved to South Africa. And that was the daily sort of life, you know, where to get money, where to get foreign currency, where to get the best rates, where to buy um, foodstuffs. And if you can, where to sell them at a higher price, where to buy fuel cheap and sell it, you know, at a higher price to make money. It it became a way of life for everyone, civil servants, um, government officials, ordinary people on the streets. And looking at it, we came to embody that sense of sort of corruption or as a people that sort of trickled down. And that's the sort of implication that for me Zamani comes to have in the book. Your book tells a lot, but it also asks a lot of questions, including can you totally reinvent yourself? Which I think is (laughs) such an important question to ask, especially in in this context. I guess on, on a basic level, that is the question. Can you run away from the past? In a way, Zamani's reinvention, right? It's a desire to take other people's histories and make them his. It's a desire to run away from the past, right? It's a desire to deny his past. Um, but as we read, we also sort of figure out his own complicated relationship or understanding of that past. So for me, that was the question, reinvention, especially now. It's interesting that, you know, our current president recently made this speech about the past is dead. You know, there's no point in looking back. And that is sort of interesting because it's always selective, right? Um, when he talks about the past, he's referring specifically to the genocide because we speak about our liberation all the time. So that idea of does reinvention or moving towards the future, does it really mean that you can forget your past and that your past does not affect right, who you are and how you become who you are? So I was uh, interested in these questions or the questions that actually arose naturally um, when I was trying to figure out who we are as a people. The book overall, it's told from Zamani's perspective. Its point of view is so extremely skewed in some ways where you discover that later because you just take him on as an honest narrator. Um, (laughs) But you discover, you know, as time goes on that that's not entirely the case. You know, I had to inhabit Zamani's consciousness for a few years, Laura, and I will tell you that was a bit difficult. (laughs) But that sort of discovery, I guess, of the manipulation and things not being the case, I think it's it's really sort of part of Zamani's own character, but also I think the natural way in which we remember ourselves, right? Um, For me, it was important to tell this history, having a first-person narrator to both convey that, right, that deep connection or being inside someone's head and experiencing and feeling what they feel, the joy, the anguish, the torment, but also, again, recognizing that limited aspect, right? We tell our stories from what we have experienced, but what we have experienced can never sort of encompass everything else, and it can actually clash with other people's experiences, right? And in the novel, you know, Zamani, he creates new histories, and he also does actively try to thwart histories that he does not like, and that to me feels like a sort of natural impulse we seem to have as people when we're telling our own stories. So the center of the action, or where all the conflict arises, is from who was where during the Kukurahundi, which was an ethnic cleansing, or as some call it, a genocide, that took place mm-hmm. in Medebele land in the early 1980s. And this mm. haunts all of the characters, no matter if they're young, if they participated or weren't there, or old. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. and I just want to know why. One interesting thing for me in writing this, when I got to learn about Kukurahundi, 
you or to sort of look it in the faces, right? to know it rather than know about it. I started asking my relatives. And so, for example, my mother was a refugee during the genocide. She was not the actively, they fled to Botswana during the genocide. But um, when I asked her, you know, she became very upset and she refused to talk about it. Right? She kept putting it off and, you know, she snapped when I tried to push the matter. And it was a sort of very interesting reaction. I also have you know, relatives and uncle, very successful, you know. He's not our stereotypical idea of a victim, but he was there during the genocide as well. And he experienced things. And when I asked him, he also became very upset, right? Very emotional. And for me, that was sort of an interesting experience. And that's why I think all the characters are haunted because one, Kukurahundi is something that we have not looked at or discussed in the country. We have had documentaries, we have all these elements, but it's very interesting. Most of the documentaries, they talk about the victims, but also in relation to justice, the perpetrators, who was where, where was Say Mugabe, what was Britain's involvement? And though that's sort of very important, um, for me, this was a way of honoring and centering the people who went through that. Just the, the, the act of experiencing with people, right, what they experienced, to witness that, um, and, and have that as the center stage. Um, so for me, having various characters with different backgrounds also for me pays sort of tribute to the pervasive nature of the genocide. Not only the physical impact, the psychological devastation, but the way it continues to haunt um, our community. Matibuli Land were a minority community in Zimbabwe and a sort of feeling of being sidelined in the country and a lack of trust, right? with our government because of what happened and the way in which it's been not talked about. We, we speak about the liberation war all the time. But when it comes to the genocide, it is always a, a matter of shutting it down. And what is more painful, Laura, is actually that people still live with this trauma up to now. So the idea of not seeing people, of shutting them away, of not having to look, also has the impact of not addressing these ongoing problems, right? Psychological, social, communal, and the very important act of healing, right? All communities do that. The need to acknowledge your dead, to acknowledge how they died. We have our own personal rights, right? In my own culture. So those sort of ways of healing, um, knowing where your loved ones are, how they died, they're so important in all communities. And it's quite a travesty when you think about it and when you look at what happened that we we treat it like it's nothing, like these people mean nothing, like our, you know, it's, it really made me cry when I was researching and writing the book. Abed Nego is also a very key character. He's such a complex, flawed character. I mean, yes. he's not perfect and he's not evil, but he is a mixture like everybody. There's nobody who's 100% perfect. He holds so many secrets mm. and he really is an amazing, rich character. Who was your inspiration? For me, the strength of these characters was really reading personal accounts. So I did a lot of reading and there've been books um, that have been written. We do not have access to them in Zimbabwe. They're not easily available. But I was at the University of Iowa and I found them in our library. So firsthand accounts from people from all walks of life, right? From the soldiers who fought in the war to the dissidents. Um, and they're sort of expressing their experience of the war from you know, to people, the villagers who, you know, were in the rural areas and were sort of incorporated into to support the, the guerrillas during the war, right? So those stories, actually, the, the sort of humanness showing both you know, fear, strength, love, um, concern, concern about yourself, your family, that actually came to inform Abednego, you know, as a character who 
you know, he has a different history from our mainstream history of the quintessential or stereotypical hero, you know, whether war hero or just heroic man, a heroic individual. But for me, it was also a way to talk about how that matters, that all lives, right, all our lives are people being people and all their strengths and weaknesses still matter. Things are happening right now in Zimbabwe. I mean, uh, Zimbabwe is going to elections at the end of July. How have recent events in Zimbabwe affected when you released House of Stone? Did that come into play at all or did it push you to finish the book? It was really quite surreal. So by the time the coup happened in November last year, we'd already set the publication dates and the final edits for House of Stone were done. But the most... um, shocking thing for me was sort of the timeliness of it it suddenly became for me a timely book but i think that what really influenced that for me i think is i think one of the beauties of fiction or storytelling or telling people's lives right like narratives or stories are by their nature timeless both timely and timeless which means um i think because there's people living their lives and it comes to embody a large sort of section of our history there's certain sort of principles or ideas, right, in the novel or, or depictions of Zimbabwe that ring true now, right? It becomes, I think, something about the spirit of the novel for me, for me, is the spirit of what we've been going through in Zimbabwe. And I think that's what makes it um, inadvertently and wittingly timely. So that was sort of delightful to see. But I was also pleased that uh, Mugabe, who is a shadow in all of our lives, does not play a purposefully prominent role in the novel. He's there as a shadow. We can never run away from him. But it was actually a choice I made in writing the book. I had to focus on another villain. That's why there's another villain in the novel based, right, on someone who really exists. Because Mugabe as a villain, for me, is very uninteresting. Like, hundreds of books have been written about him. And he's simply the face of a larger system of philosophy, Um, that has come to affect or impact, uh, embody all of us in Zimbabwe. Uh, Well, in fact, I wanted to talk about one key character who has no voice, but his actions resonate, and that is Black Jesus. Now, there there were a few Black Jesuses in Zimbabwe around liberation, Mm -hmm. but the most important Mm -hmm. is seemingly Parents Shiri, who's the current agricultural minister under President Emerson Menengagwa. Both Menengagwa and Shiri have been implicated publicly in the Gukurahundi, and which also relates to what the president said about the past is over. It seems that the Gakurahundi has also been an issue in the upcoming elections. Black Jesus, you have rightly identified him. Black Jesus in the novel is a fictional depiction of parents Shuri. He was the leader of the Five Brigade and he is said to have done so many despicable things. He named himself Black Jesus um, in the book. He's named as Black Jesus, the fictional character. Um, you know, Black Jesus in the novel, he does not need to speak because his actions, um, he's a character who does not speak verbally in the sense that we never sort of get his POV, but his actions have a very like reverberating impact on all the characters' lives. It was a very difficult thing to do, but when I was writing, because this is about people, um, I had to. <laughs> the characters had to get close to Jesus, not just as a figure of power, but as something very intimate that has impacted their lives intimately. And what does that mean? Right? What happens right, when figure, when power is imbued in individuals and they come to mean to take on larger than life qualities and have 
such devastating impact. So um, for me, it was two-way. Having them, my characters interact intimately with Black Jesus and everything he represents, you know, it, it gets to acknowledge the impact and the devastation, right? That was the genocide. But um, I think it interestingly may have also the effect of neutering that sort of power, because I feel like power also derives its authority from distance, right? From being impersonable. And I think intimate relations or trying to intimately understand or stare terror in the face can have a way of trying to neuter it. It wasn't my intention, but it, as I was writing, this seemed to be happening in the novel. You know, as for what's happening now, I mean, we have a commission, right? A Peace and Reconciliation Commission with regards to the genocide. However, at the same time, you have our president, um, Nangwako, saying the past is dead. Um, you have the vice president, Kimba Mohadi, saying Kukurahundi is no longer an issue. Interestingly, the vice president, Kimba Mohadi, is the one who is in charge of the Peace and Reconciliation Commission. There's so many contradictions. You have people in government, Nangwagwa, parents, Shiri. These are people who are directly implicated, and yet they also have power over this commission. So the Kukurangundi issue is it's it's still a very big issue and it's not being addressed properly. I do not think it will be addressed anytime soon. We have movements in Zimbabwe that uh, have been trying to address this. The Ntwagazi movement, which is fictionalized in my novel, we have Ipechuliga Zulu, and these are movements that recently have tried to commemorate the genocide. Right? They've tried to go to the Balagwe concentration camp, for instance. They've tried to exhume bodies of the dead. Every time they've been thwarted, you know, by our police, right? So it, it's a difficult issue, but I it feels at this moment that we cannot run away from it. Um, one of the interesting things, Mugabe, you know, the coup um, against Mugabe sort of seemed to release a sort of energy amongst the people of Zimbabwe. There's been a lot of talk about Gugurundi and so many crimes, right? There's this boldness that's coming up, and it's so beautiful to see. Um, but it's not clear as of now what the outcome is. But I think it's important for us to, to speak out, to witness, and to acknowledge our humanness, to demand that acknowledgement, right, in a space that always constantly, constantly dehumanizes us, which is to say, your story does not matter. What happened to you does not matter. You do not deserve to tell your story. Keep quiet about your story in order to protect power. Here's Novuyo Rosa Chuma reading an excerpt of House of Stone. I took a combi home, but I haven't been able to sit still, to watch TV, nothing. Instead, I consulted my red album, flipping the pages and asking it, what would you do? It helped, talking to my red album. In it is everything I abhor, and yet everything as well I yearn for. A father, my father, my mother, to be somebody's son. Strong family roots in which to build my legacy. Being reminded of this helped to calm me, and I was able to think clearly for the first time in days. I was feeling terrible, panicking, shrinking from my surrogate parents, all because I haven't been focusing on my redemptive chronicles. Ever since I started gleaning from my surrogate parents their histories, and from this the seeds for my own new history, I felt myself progress. I have felt an inner change. I am becoming a new person, imbibing fresh stories, a new way of seeing and being, casting away the burdensome identity Uncle Fanny thrust upon me on his deathbed. 
I am beginning, finally, to see the light. That's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening to Africa Stories in the 55. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. What are you reading? Let us know. Write to us at storiesinthe55 at rfi.fr. That's storiesinthe55 with 55 is numbers at rfi.fr. Goodbye. Goodbye.